I'm sure most of you know that this past Friday was November 11th, and November 11th is always what? Veterans Day. And, um, you know, I'm working on my sermon last, last week and thinking about Veterans Day, and all of a sudden it hit me, hey, Veterans Day is all about promises. I don't think I ever thought about that before, but I'm preaching a series called The Promises That Change the World. Veterans Day is all about promises. Um, I'm sure most of you know that uh, before there was Veterans Day, there was Armistice Day. That's the same day. Um, Armistice Day was um, November 11th, 1918. And the idea there was, and the word armistice means promise. I don't know if you knew that. It means promise to cease fire. Promise to make a truce. And so all the parties got together and promised, okay, at at the 11th hour, 11 o'clock, on the 11th day, of the 11th month, we're going to promise, we're going to keep the promise to, to, to do a truce and no more firing, no more, no more fighting. And um, that became Armistice Day that they celebrated year after year. And then many years later, 1954, we, we renamed it uh, Veterans Day, but it's still the same day. And it, and it goes back to that promise. In fact, there are so many promises that are wrapped up in Veterans Day, not just the original meaning of the, the, the day, but, of course, if you're going to be a veteran, first you've got to serve. And whenever someone enlists, they make a series of promises. Those of you who are not military people may not know this. There's oaths that are made. And the U.S. military makes promises to the person that enlists. You know, we, we promise to take care of your, of your salary, your medical, your family, your retirement, your benefits. All these promises are, are kept and being made on both sides. And whenever we honor a veteran, that's, that's another small way of us keeping our promise to thank our veterans for the commitments and the promises that they've made, amen? So I think we should have our veterans stand and we should thank them publicly for keeping their promise. Please stand. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Here is a copy of the promise that many of these men and women made. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. They've seen it. <laughs> and uh, I don't know how long that promise is being, has been made, but I thank God for our veterans who kept their promise to you know, defend the freedoms. And, and you know, all these promises, it, it, and it ends with this phrase, so help me God. Actually, in, uh, in that promise, in that oath, God is referred to twice. Did you see the first time? You don't, you don't see it, do you? It's, it's explicit here and implicit right here. Whenever you swear, I don't mean like a cuss word. I mean, whenever you make an oath, whenever you, you swear, you swear to God. There's this oath in the presence of God. So this very language is implying that there is a, commitment. There's an oath, a promise being made that is wrapped up by real clearly, so help me God. It's fascinating in a, a time in our country's history when we're trying to get rid of God and all references to God, there he sits right there. So help me God. But, but you know, why, why God? Why, why do we say, so help me God? Isn't it enough just to make a, a, an oath? Why not... Um, why not make an oath or why not swear to um, the Statue of Liberty or um, a pile of money or Mother Nature? You know, some people would like us to do that. And, or why not just swear to yourself? And actually, the answer to that question is in the Bible. And if you do our church-wide devotions on this Tuesday, you're going to come across Hebrews chapter 6 that says, now when people take an oath, they call on someone greater than themselves to hold them to it. Why do we swear to God? Why do we make an oath? Why are our vows to our spouses and other promises we make in the presence of God? Because we're taking an oath to someone greater because I don't keep all my promises. Sorry, you don't either. Our government doesn't keep all its promises. Sorry, <laughs> no government does. As much as we want to, we don't always keep our 
promises. And even the most trustworthy person is not trustworthy 100% of the time. But there is someone who is. Amen? 100% without fail, God has always kept his promise because his promises are based on his own character. That's the someone greater. So when we launch into this series, the promises that change the world, we're, we're working our way through the gospel of Luke. We just started last week. And Luke wants us to know that this amazing story of this guy, Jesus of Nazareth, as amazing and as historic as his birth and his life and his teaching and his death and his resurrection is, as amazing as that is, that story isn't just something that came out of nowhere. That story, that life is the fulfillment of a series of promises that God made to his people, to this world. And so Luke starts off, very first verse, helping us see that, that you know, all these things that have happened have been fulfilled. It's a promise word. They've been fulfilled among us. So everything Jesus said, even before he was born and where he was born, the things he said, the things he did, all fulfillment of the promises of God. <laughs> and, and I love that because that's who God is, the promise-making, promise-keeping God. And whenever he promises, it will be done. Not just Old Testament prophecies, but to New Testament and the promises that he makes to you. And these are the promises that changed the world. And uh, I just wonder, have you ever put your faith in the God who makes promises? Are you living in the promises that God has made? Because there's hundreds of them that have changed your world. I want to look today at a story at a couple of a couple whose, you can hardly picture a, a more dramatic transformation, a, a more dramatic change of their world than the story I want you to see in Luke chapter one, verses five to 25. So if you'll turn with me there, I mean, I'm telling you, changed their world and not only their world, our world. So when you get to Luke chapter one, verse five, how about if you stand with me? If you're new, we do this to honor God's word. Um, I will put the words up on the screen, but I, 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 I plead with you, bring your Bible. You know, as I'm preaching, have your Bible open and looking at it and drawing lines and circles and writing in the margin. If, you, if you're a, a doodler, doodle, whatever, but you know, bring your Bible, dig into it. So here we go, Luke chapter one. And, and uh, as I read through this, um, there's a whole bunch of promises just in this passage. It's like 20 verses. So we're going to be standing here for several hours because I'm slow. I'm a slow reader. Um, look for the promises. In fact, if you're a person who likes to count them, count the promises. Here we go. Ready? In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah. Like it starts off like once upon a time, right? Uh, Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. So he's a, he's a priest. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. So she's in a priestly line. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Not just old, but very old, like 45, 50, no, probably like 75, 80, 85, you know, very old. Once when Zechariah's priestly division was on duty and he was serving as a priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the, the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and to burn incense. Let me pause right there. There was a, probably about around 18,000 priests at the time that Zechariah lived. And it was the goal of every priest to be able to, to go into the temple holy place, right up close to the Holy of Holies, not in, but right up close only a few people got to do it. If you got chosen, and most priests lived their whole life and never got chosen to do this. It's a very high privilege. And if you got chosen, that was it. You did it once your life. So this is a big deal. So 
this, um, he, he gets chosen. He goes into the temple to burn the incense. And when the time came for the burning of the incense, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Suddenly, an, an angel of the Lord appears to Zechariah, standing at the right side of the altar, right of the incense, right where he's just supposed to be, right where he's heading. And when Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. We'll, we'll talk about what that prayer was. Here we go. Your wife, Elizabeth, that's one of his prayers, will bear you a son. I, I wonder if he was still praying this at age 80, 85. Your wife, and here we go with the promises, will bear, I promise you, a son. And you are to call him. John, that's in the, in the Hebrew, or in the Greek here, it's you will call him. It's like, it's a promise. This is gonna happen. Um, and look at these promises. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great. Every parent likes to hear that about their kid. He will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or any other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he's born. He hasn't been born yet. This is still all promise. And he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go on before the Lord. Incredible. In the spirit and, and power of, of Elijah to turn the hearts of the people to their children and to the disobedient, to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Ooh, this is about Messiah. And Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? <laughs> I'm an old man. And I love how he doesn't say his wife is old. He's like, she's, you know, um, advanced in years. You know, she's well along in years. Never say your wife is old. Use this line. She's well along in years. And the angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the very presence of God. And I've been sent by God to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now, I promise you, you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because it will, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. While all these promises are being made, meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. And when he came out, he could not speak to them they realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs. But what kind of signs do you make when you can't speak to say, I saw an angel and he spoke to me? Well, I mean, first Pictionary, first charades game. And um, he kept making all these signs, but he remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned to his home in Enkarim, just a suburb of Jerusalem. And after this, the promises start happening. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant. For five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace, my shame. You could translate that among the people. Wow, let's, let's uh, be seated. How many promises did you count? Anybody? Did you count the promises? Are you standing on the promises? <laughs> okay, so I counted 10. And so let me show you the, my 10. Um, number one, verse 13, he will, uh, Elizabeth will bear you a son. And I remember I said that this second one is a, in, the, in the Greek is a promise. You will call him. It's in the future tense. Whenever you see this will be, there it goes. So verse 14, next one. He will be a joy. And then further on verse 14, many will rejoice. Verse 15, he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will be filled with the Spirit even before he's born. Verse 16, he will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. Verse 17, he will go on in the, before the Lord in the Spirit and the power of Elijah. And then drop down to verse 20. Now you will be silent and not able to speak. And then the last promise of verse uh, 20, I can't remember. Um, this promise that these words will come true at their appointed time. Um, they will come true 
and all the things that the angel promised will happen to you, Zechariah and Elizabeth. You will have a son, and that will be the first, and you'll begin to recognize all of these promises coming true. Why? Because God's promises always come true, and because of that, they bring and did bring massive change in the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Jerusalem and Israel and to this day. Why? Because God's promises always change our world. Not just Zechariah and Elizabeth here. That's what this story is about at first. But it's all the way down to us. Now, uh, I don't know how familiar you are with this story. And as a preacher, as a person interpreting the scripture, um, and, and this is true for you, and whenever you're trying to interpret, understand a passage, if there's names in the passage, especially if there's a bunch of them like this, here's a clue. Try to find out the, the, the meaning of those names. Because today, you know, sometimes people name their, their kids meaningful names. Sometimes they don't. They just want the most popular name or the most unique name or, you know, a name that, that they've never heard anywhere else. Uh, but in Bible times, especially in the Old Testament and, and even the first uh, part of the New Testament, people named their kids, you know, Hebrew names, and those names meant something. Something was happening in their life or something that happened before or something God had done. And their name told a story. Their name pictured. In fact, everybody knew what everybody's name meant. You know, a lot of people don't know what their names mean, but in the Bible, as soon as you heard a name, you know what it meant. For instance, Zechariah, because you spoke Hebrew, you knew. That means God remembers. When you heard the name Elizabeth, you knew. It means God, the promise, because you use that word promise, Sheba. You use this word, God remembers. You use those words in everyday speech. And so when someone's named Zechariah, you're like, oh, God remembers. When someone hears the name of Elizabeth, oh, God of promise. What about God's name? He's the next person mentioned in the story. What does God's name mean? Well, that's actually a really good question. A lot of people don't know the answer, but every Jew did. In fact, they treasured and honored the name of God so much because they knew what it meant, that many of them wouldn't speak his name or wouldn't write his name. And there became all these other ways of talking about the name. And they didn't want to take the name of the Lord their God in vain. But there is a place in the Bible. Do you know this place in the Bible where God tells us his name and what his name means? It's all the way back to the old, second book of the Bible, Exodus. Um, the story of God calling Moses uh, to become the deliverer of the nation of Israel. Right now, they're in slavery to the nation of Egypt. And Moses has been out in the desert, and he sees a bush burning, but it doesn't burn up. This is Exodus chapter 3. It's burning, but it doesn't burn up. And then God speaks out of the bush, and it's crazy. And God says to Moses, I'm going to call you to deliver. And Moses goes, uh, 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 I'm a stutterer. I don't, I don't know. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God says, oh, this is so good. I will be with you. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a couple seconds. But that's a, an incredible phrase, not just because of its plain meaning in English, I will be with you. But what I'm about to show you in the next verses in Exodus 3, <laughs> so, um, oh, let me just tell you this. Actually, this, this Hebrew phrase means um, it is I am that is with you. Again, hold on to that. So they go back and forth. And Moses, I love this first word. Moses goes, suppose I were to obey you. Can you imagine saying that to God? Suppose I were to obey you and go to the Israelites and say to them, um, the God of your fathers, your dad's God, has sent me to you. <laughs> and they ask me, um, yeah, what's his name? Then what shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Someone just said amen, and I agree, but if we can say this in church, that's kind of a silly name, don't you think? What's your name? I am. Well, that's not a name. It's, it's, what? See, God's saying something in his name. 
I am. I am being itself. I am existence. I, I am what life is all about. I, I am. It's, just, it's like you can't get any more basic, any more amazing than that. I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent you. <laughs> Whoa. And so the story goes on and uh, Moses is like, what a name. So in your notes, write down, first of all, this this two words, I am, that's, that's, what, that's what God's name is. Yahweh, um, if you want to pronounce it that way, in Hebrew, and again, many Hebrews, many Jews would not pronounce that or wouldn't even write it, but that's what Yahweh means. I am, I am who I am. Now, let's put these two verses together. Verse 14, this is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. And then that verse I told you we would come back to. And God said, it is I am who is with you. There's a play on words going on here. The, the, when he says, I will be with you, or I am, it is I am who is with you. It's God's way of saying that not only am I existence itself, not only am I the ground of all being, not only am the, I am being itself, but wherever I am, while I'm, when I'm there, I am with you. Here's the, here's the amazing thing that we don't think about. Wherever we are, God is. There's no, Psalm 139 says, there's no place I can go apart from your presence. Wherever I go, God ams. God is. He was. He is. He is to come. You can't get away from him. And his name literally means I am here. I am present because I am. And what that helps us see, this is amazing, that in God's name is a promise because I always am and always have been and always will be. I will always be with you wherever you go. This is so beautiful. So for some of you, that's that's good news because you go to places sometimes that you're scared or you go to places and you feel alone, but God's with you. Other people, when you go into places that you don't want anyone else to know you were there, God's with you. <laughs> He's sitting right there with you while you're doing that or watching that. God is always with us. It's a promise. My name, God says, is a promise of my presence. And we're gonna come back to this in a second. So you got Zechariah's name, Elizabeth's name, God's name. Then you have Gabriel, who's a messenger of God. Then you finally get to John. John's name means Yahweh, that's I am. I am is gracious. Yahweh is gracious. And that's cool, but there's something else that I want you to see that's happening in this passage with John. Okay, so John is the son of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And he is the fruit of their marriage, the fruit of their consummation. And when they came together, it's Zechariah, God remembers, Elizabeth, God of the promise. And these two names, these two people produce this guy, John. And so his very life is the, the product of these two words here. God remembers his promise. Wherever you see, this is John the Baptist, by the way. Wherever you see the John the Baptist, he is the fruit of God remembers and God of the promise. God remembers his promise. And so Luke helps us see kind of woven into this language and these stories and these names is that God is about to fulfill his promises, even as we speak. And that's why you see all these promises in the passage. You're like, well, what promises is God fulfilling? Well, of all the ones that I just read, let's go back to verse 17. This promise that the, the angel Gabriel makes to Zechariah about his son, John the baptizer, John the Baptist. Again, this is before he's even born or even conceived. He will go on before the Lord, Yahweh. Your son will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, those of you who know your Bibles, and if you were a, a Jew living those times, you knew these words that, that are right, right here that, that Gabriel says, are the last words of the Old Testament. Who knows the last book of the Old Testament? Just shout out the name. Malachi. If you want to turn there, you can, or I can just put it on the screen for you. Malachi 4, the last couple verses, 
Verse five says, see, I will send the prophet Elijah. Our verse, Luke 1, 17, he will go on in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's connecting the birth of John the Baptist to the promise made in Malachi. Incredible. I will send the prophet Elijah to you. Verse six, he will turn the hearts of the parents. Turn the, Gabriel knows his Bible. He's literally quoting Malachi 4. And this, so, so this is the beginning of this fulfillment. And this, the, the, what they begin to learn from Malachi is that when the Messiah comes, before he comes will be his forerunner, the, the messenger that goes ahead of him. It's not just Malachi 4, but also in Malachi 3, God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way. That's the language of John the Baptist. Before me, Yahweh, the great I am. And this, this in fact, let's just pause for a second. Look at all the promises that are just in this verse. I will send, he will prepare. The Lord will come. The one you've been waiting for all these years, he will come. But notice, the messenger who prepares the way is the one who then opens the world, opens the door, you know, sets up, prepares the way for the Messiah. And everybody's excited about the, the prophet, but not nearly as excited about the Messiah. And so when they began to see God fulfilling the messenger, uh, the prophecy of the messenger, the spirit of Elijah, this, this one who would go before, they know Messiah is just around the corner. Now, you, you've got to understand that to be a, a Jewish person living in these times, they waited for the Messiah with bated breath. Every girl dreamed, would I be the one who will become the mother of the Messiah? And they talked about it and they sang about it. And, and every couple, every family talked about, will we ever see Messiah? Because it had been for hundreds of years that Messiah was promised. But year after year, decade after decade, century after century, no Messiah, no Messiah. And let me start by trying to explain it here. It's like you're a kid who's heard about Christmas but it's never come. And people have said, oh, it's coming. You know, it's presents, it's food, it's everything. And, you know, it's amazing. Christmas, all, all the color, all the de decorations. It's just amazing. And you get all excited, but it never happens. And year after year after year goes by. I'm thinking of, the, of Father Christmas in the Narnia series. And it never happens. But that's such a weak illustration. Maybe to say this, you're a people who are living in slavery you can't break the chains of your slavery. And you've heard year after year, story after story, for hundreds of years, freedom is coming, but it never comes. The oppressors will be put down and we will be set free. And there's, there's Bible verses and there's prophets and there's prophecies and decades go by, centuries go by and time just goes by and some people give up waiting, but there is a ton of those who never gave up, but you can taste some of that waiting, that waiting for the coming of Messiah. And now to know that just before he comes will be the, the prophet Elijah, that this person who will come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And now you're Zechariah and Elizabeth and you're hearing the angels say, that's you. Your son is the Elijah. Your son is gonna prepare the way for Messiah. I mean, that is crazy exciting because God's promises are finally coming true. And as you're reading this story, you could actually begin to think this story is all about Elizabeth and Zechariah because didn't it say that they were righteous and blameless? Verse six, and, and it did what God chose the, the most amazing couple because God's promises are based upon good people. You would misread the Bible if you read it that way. It's easy to read this story all about Zechariah and Elizabeth, but that's not the story that Luke is telling. Zechariah and Elizabeth, like you and I, can I say this in narcissistic America? It's not about us. This story is not about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They're just bit players. Let me bring you down to earth. You are a bit player. You have a role. You're in the play, but it's not all about you. Who's it about? It's about God 
his purposes, his promises. So you could write this down. God's promises are based on his purposes, not your dreams, not your you know, goals, not your life. You have a role in God's promises, but it's not about you. It's about God and his purposes. You guys remember when we were preaching through the, uh, I almost said the gospel of Luke, the book, the, the gospel of Ruth, the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. I'm excited because there's even more goodies coming. Um, Remember when we preached through the book of Ruth and uh, I kept using this phrase so many times that some of you memorized it. And we said that this Ruth, book of Ruth, helps us see that God is always working then and now in our lives and in our world. Even when things are bad, God's working to do what? To accomplish his purposes for our good. It's good, but ultimately for his glory. Remember that? Those of you who, well, actually, all of us, let's all say this out loud together. Just kind of remind us. Remember, let's go. God is working in our lives together and in our world to accomplish his purposes for our good and his glory. And I said that was true for Ruth. It was true for before Ruth. It was true for after Ruth. It's true now. Now let's take that statement and plug it into the gospel of Luke and by adding a phrase. If you've got your notes open, you can see where I'm going. God is working in our lives and our world to accomplish his purposes and fulfill his promises. This, this phrase that we talked about is still true, but now we not only see that God's doing his purposes, but he's made promises because God's promises are based upon God's purposes. And this is good for us to see because even though I'm telling you it's not about Zechariah and Elizabeth, and the moment, they kind of think it is. And their story about my, our life, even though they're righteous people, even though they're blameless, their story is a story of disappointment and sadness. We learned that in verse seven, with this big three-letter word, but they were childless. And it's hard for me to communicate to 2022 America how heartbreaking, how disappointing, how shameful it felt in Bible times to not have a child. It wasn't because God made it shameful. It was because people twisted the Bible's words and they added their own things and began to create this ugly narrative that if you didn't have children, it was because you were under a curse and people grew up believing this. People still believe it today. And that's why it's so good for us to see that verse seven fits with verse six because it's not about their unrighteousness, their sinfulness. Look, look what it says. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands blamelessly. And so if you were to, to misunderstand this passage and go, oh, now I see why God blessed them with John the Baptist. It's because they were righteous. No, no. <laughs> they were childless after years and decades of being righteous and following the rules and performing all the thing, the, the decrees and all the commands and, and getting it right and, and focusing on that and maybe wondering in the back of their mind, if I keep doing this, maybe God will bless me. If I keep following the rules, maybe God will give me a child. If I keep following the commands, God will bless me, won't he? Same thing you do. And then when you don't see God's blessing, you begin to make up a narrative. I, I must have sinned something. I must have done something. I must have misdispleased God. Maybe I didn't tithe or maybe I wasn't nice to that person or we make up this narrative. I must have done something wrong because otherwise if I was doing things right, then God is obligated to bless me and to pour out his, his promises upon me. No, that's, that's not, that's, an, that's America's version of God, but that's not the Bible's version of God. See, we, there's some things in there that sound so good, but they're, they're, they're twisted. God does not make promises based upon our performance or lack of performance in keeping the law or being good or, or anything else. 
God's promises are not based upon our performance. So, so thank you, Luke, for telling us that Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous. But thank you even more for pointing out that while they're very old, they're also childless. If God's blessing of a son was based upon their righteousness, they would have had a kid a long time ago. But instead, you know, let's say they're 75, 80 years old. They got married maybe when they're 15. So how many years is that of serving God blamelessly, keeping the law, being righteous? See, God did not give Zechariah and Elizabeth the son that would become known as John the Baptist because they were righteous, but because it was God's purpose and plan. This will save a lot of us heartache and a lot of pain. And it'll also help us see that, as I said, it's not about us. God's promises are based upon God's purposes. And God will always fulfill every promise he has made, even, back to Zechariah and Elizabeth, even when it seems like it's been a long time. Remember when we preached in the book of Habakkuk? And Habakkuk says, how long, O oh Lord? We learned how to lament. And maybe for you, it's a, you can't have children. Or maybe it's for you, you can't find that job. Or maybe for you, it's, relationships don't seem to work. And you're like, how long, O oh God? And for Zechariah and Elizabeth, how long did they pray? Were they still praying up until the day Zechariah went into the temple? Is that what Gabriel means? The Lord has heard your prayer? Or does he mean he heard your prayers years ago? Did, did Zechariah and Elizabeth, I should say Z and E, just to make it shorter, did, did they give up praying? Because it had been a, a long time. And there's full of disappointment because now, come on, come on. Now things are impossible. This passage keeps pointing out that they're very old. <laughs> Zechariah says, how can this be? I know how sex works. I just said sex. Somebody woke up. I know how this stuff works. I'm an old man. And my wife, again, you know, politically correct. She's along in years, you know. Have you noticed, God? This is impossible. And God says, have you read the Torah? Have you read the Bible? Remember Abraham and Sarah? Kind of impossible there. See, I'm the God of the impossible. I was then. I always am. Don't look at the circumstances and use them to figure out what God is doing. Go to God's word. What has God promised? What, is God, what are God's purposes? You can't read what God's purposes are by listening to the news, by, by checking your feed. You, you go to the word of God. What has God said? That's how you find the purposes of God. And so for, for Zechariah and Elizabeth, I, I don't know the answers to these questions, how long they've been praying and, and whether they've given up, but, but I want you to know that God fulfills every promise he's made, even when it's been a long time, even when it looks impossible. Now I'm about to get to the hardest part of all. Strap your seatbelt on. Put your helmets on. It's about to get ugly. And this next point I have to set up by bringing you to verse 19 where the angel says, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. But you will now be struck silent and not be able to speak. Why? Because you did not believe. In other words, God's promises are based on his purposes even when we fail. The reason why I say put your seatbelts on is because there are tons of you listening to me right now who you believe in your heart that there's something that you did or there's something that happened to you or something you didn't do that you should have done and you carry shame in your heart over what happened to you, over what you did. You don't like to talk about it, but it's always kind of there. And it just keeps coming up, and it's toxic. And that failure, you didn't protect yourself from this happening, or you did something, or you let something happen, or, or whatever narrative in your life is, this, this thing has has happened to you or you've done it and it's created a shame in you. You've tried to stuff and you've tried to get rid of it. You've tried to numb it, but it's a failure. 
It's a failure on your part that malmarks you. And if we could go down to the deepest part of who you are, we would be shocked by seeing how many of us carry a story of shame that we believe keeps us from God's very best. Some of us are fighting and scratching and trying to, to prove that that story is wrong. Others of us have just accepted it. It's just, just, just who I am. It just happened to me. I, I can't get around it. And the shame of failing, the shame of being there when failure happened. And I want you to know that God's promises are not affected by your failure. Well, hear this. Sin happens. Horrible things happen. Shame gets into our soul. But God's promises and God's purposes are not affected by your failure. Just like we said that they're not affected by how righteous you are. And yet God doesn't say, well, I'm going to do my purposes through you because you've been so righteous. He only did that with one person. That's Jesus. <laughs> Everybody else, God's promises are based upon his purposes and he just chooses you. And some of you can believe that, but you can't believe this because you believe your failure has disqualified you. You say, how do I know this? Because I know people. Actually, some of you don't even know this about yourself. It's so deep down embedded in you. I wish that I could just reach into your soul right now and, and extract that, that shame, that wound. And maybe God will do that today. We'll see. Let's, let's, let's keep going. Because see, in Zechariah's life, it was a pretty big failure. The first big failure in the Bible, in the New Testament. And I call it the biggest moment in Zechariah's life. Why do I say that? For three reasons. Because he was a Jew, as I said before, he's waited his whole life for Messiah. He's still waiting, still waiting. Secondly, because he's a man, he's waited his whole life to have a son, to carry on his name. His name. This is what he's, what he's dreaming about because he's a Jewish man. And thirdly, because he's a priest, he's dreamed the whole, his whole life of getting the call to go into the temple to, to do the incense and to be close to the Holy of Holies. To see Messiah, to have a son, to serve in the temple, the closest part of the temple. Those are all dreams he has and they're all about to be fulfilled in one moment. It's the biggest moment of his life and he fails. Right? You, you, we, read, we read the story. He failed to see how God was working. He didn't realize that, that Gabriel was there to, to say, it's happening. I'm bringing Messiah. I'm going to use your son. And I'm going to speak to you in a word that's going to blow your mind. It's happening right now. Zechariah didn't see it. He didn't recognize what God was doing, so he failed to believe. Verse 20. And his failure to believe blinded him from seeing. See the connection here? His failure to believe blinded him from seeing what God was doing. The biggest moment in his life, he couldn't see it because he didn't believe. Why didn't Zechariah believe? He's a righteous man. He's blameless. Verse, I think it's verse 12 helps us see. He was gripped with fear. He failed because of fear. And that fear gripped him Instead of focusing on God, I mean, he's in the temple. He's got an angel of God right there. He's got every reason to focus on God, but he focuses on his fear instead. Instead of focusing on God, what God is saying now, what God has said, what God's doing in life, all I can see is fear, fear, fear. Watch this. Fear seeks to keep you from hearing God's promises. Fear seeks to keep you from seeing God's purposes and from sensing God's presence. That's what's happening with Zechariah. He's standing in the presence of God and an angel in the temple next to the Holy of Holies and he does not sense what God is doing. He doesn't see it. He doesn't, he, the promises, the, the purposes, it's all confusing and I don't see it. That's why he fails. And many people writing this story would say, and Zechariah lived a tragic life because he failed in the most epic moment of his life. 
But because God's promises are based upon his purposes, not on Zechariah's performance or yours, even when we fail, come on, God is still faithful. Come on, right? Even when we fail, I mean, epic failure, you name it. What's yours? Or how many do you have? It doesn't really matter because God's purposes are not based upon whether you're righteous or unrighteous. His purposes, I mean, his promises are based upon his purposes. Otherwise, you couldn't get saved. Otherwise, there would be no blessing in your life. What I'm trying to help you see today is what God is doing in this story and how you have very weak people whose lives are bound by fear and shame. But it does not keep God from doing what he's doing because God is faithful. God's promises are grounded in his faithfulness. And so if you can somehow hear this before we leave today, that it's all based upon God. That's true for your salvation. That's true for eternity. It's true for the blessings. It's true for the promises that God's doing. It's true for the God's purposes that he's telling this story. You will fail. That's why there's grace. That's what Elizabeth says in verse 25. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his, this is the word grace, his favor. The Lord has done this. Again, I've tried to say this multiple times. It's not Elizabeth's righteousness. It's not Zechariah's blamelessness. It's not their performance. The Lord has done this for me. Now, that means the Lord has given them John the Baptist. This is God's doing, but it means something more. Come closer. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace, my shame. Remember how he said Zechariah's issue was fear? Here's Elizabeth's issue, shame. For 50, 60, 70 years, she's endured the scorn, the shame in that culture of, well, you know, Zechariah and Elizabeth are nice people, but they don't have kids, and we all know why. And the shame and the reproach and the disgrace is just eating at her. And eat. Why do I know it's eating at her? Because look what she says when she talks about what God's done. She says, the shame is gone. The, the reproach is gone. And how did it happen? Because I was so righteous. I knew if I just kept being good, God would bless me. No, the Lord has done this for me. It's his grace. His purposes are at work. So friends, if you're dealing with fear or shame, write this down. The antidote for shame is what God has done, not what you have done. Amen, we should clap about this. There's nothing you have done or ever could do that can overrule God's work in your life. And shame is so deep and so toxic and so destructive. Your willpower, your support groups, your prayers at the altar, none of that can Take the place of what God does. Now, go to a support group. Pray, but recognize it's not your performance. It's not your doing. It's what God has done. Notice what God has done. Have you done something? Oh, yeah. Or has something been done to you? Oh, yeah. But let these words, what God has done, let those yellow words, those bold words scream into your heart that God is the one who takes away our shame. Do you need to have some shame dealt with this morning, today? Are you a Zechariah that fear has bound you? Or are you Elizabeth where shame is destroying you? As hard as you try to push it down and run away from it and numb it by all the things you do and buy and, and, and try to impress people with, the shame is not going to go away until the Lord takes it away. And you say, well, when will that day happen? When you stop trying to take it away, when you stop trying to ignore it, when you stop trying to deal with it, when you stop trying to be God, and you lose yourself in the great I am. Come on, you guys. God is with you. 
Stop trying to be your own God. He's with you. He's here now. He is, I am. And he wants to take that fear. He wants to take that shame. He wants to take it away from you. But you got to let go. You got to stop trying to play God. Stop trying to ignore it. Try, stop trying to, to pretend it's not there. What do you think? You ready to do that today? Ready to let God deal with that shame? Because that's what happened on the cross. Jesus took our shame, the things we've done and things that have been done against us. And he broke the power of sin and death and disgrace and reproach and shame by taking that shame upon himself. So the writer of the Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he despised the shame and, and looked the shame of the cross and, and looked, kept his eyes upon the God, the Father, his eyes upon the prize. Jesus took your shame. You don't have to deal with it anymore. <laughs> Hallelujah. Give it to the great I am. And you'll be able to sing with Elizabeth. Great is your faithfulness to me. Because the God of the covenant, the God of the promises, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Daniel, and David, and Josiah, and Joshua, and Jesus, and Paul, and, and your parents, and, and me, the, our God is the I am who wants to take away the sin, the shame, the pain, the hurt, the fear, whatever is holding us back from seeing God's purposes, seeing God's promises at work and stepping in to the fullness of his presence. Look, close your eyes with me. Oh, God, all over your church, called Church of the Open Door, there are people who are wrestling with fear and shame. They're at different levels of maturity and righteousness, and that, that doesn't really matter because it's your purpose to take away the shame. It's your purpose to bring healing and there's healing in your name, the name of God, the great I am. Your presence is here amongst us. So God, would you move and would you work? I can't see into people's souls, but you can. And as I said earlier, I think there are some people who don't even know that they're bound by fear or that they're bound by shame. So would you do a work in our hearts today? work of redemption, a work of healing, a work of deliverance. You're the God of the covenant. And whatever you say, you do. Whatever you say, you do. And you say to us, give me that shame. Give me that fear. I took it to the cross. Let's all stand to our feet. And every campus to stand to our feet and let's just lean into this song. God, work in us. While we're singing, while we're standing there, maybe we want to come down to an altar. Maybe we just want to stand in your presence. But God, deal with us. Deal with us. Heal us. Covenant-keeping God. Work in us by the power of your spirit because of the blood of Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.